Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week, I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. You'll probably be able to hear from my voice that I have been a bit poorly this week. Um, It is my first lurgy since COVID began. Uh, So apologies in advance for the slight huskiness, but I thought I would press on regardless and bring you this week's episode. When you think about human rights, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Maybe it's the treatment of prisoners overseas or working conditions and pay in your place of employment or freedom of speech or the right of an individual to live freely and safely in whatever manner they choose. Maybe it's a multitude of other things because the subject of human rights is broad and deep and it's also vitally important. My guest today is Vicky Price, a human rights lawyer and consultant, podcaster and writer. We love women with adventurous and challenging careers on this podcast, and Vicky has that in spades. She's worked for the UN in Kosovo, Amnesty International, Penal Reform International and the British government, amongst others. She's worked in Ukraine, Russia and Armenia and consulted on cases involving Guantanamo Bay and more. We are all experts in our own little niches, she says. Personally, I think she's a lot more than that. But Vicky Price, welcome to Smashing the Ceiling. Vicky, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a delight to have you on the podcast and I can't wait to start digging into your uh, wide and varied career. Um, You say on your website that London is your home, but the world is your workplace. Where was your home growing up and what were you like as a child? So, um, well, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to be on on the show. It's it's great to be here. Um, so, home originally for me actually was in Scotland. You can't tell from my my Scottish accent, but I was born and brought up for the first three four years of my life actually in Glasgow, um, and then sadly my my parents divorced and I moved down to London with my mum. But I have very strong Scottish connections. My father still lives up in Scotland there, so. Um, so really sort of Scotland um, is, is where my, my home and lies or my roots lie. Um, and as a child, gosh, I, can't, I don't have many memories of myself as a young child. I think I was quite quiet, actually. Um, and yeah, kept myself to myself a little bit, I think. <laughs> where did your interest in the law and human rights come from? Were you, were you a child that was kind of always interested in the news and the, out, and the wider world? Or was that something that kind of came to you a bit later on? Um, I think yes, probably I did. I, I did always have a bit of an interest in what was happening in the world there. But um, also, I kind of came from a family of lawyers, and so that probably um, influenced a lot. I think you know, but they're not human rights lawyers; they're they're in different sort of 
bits of the law there. So I think that sort of interest in, in law, international affairs, what's happening in the world was, was always a, around me there. But it really kind of crystallised for me or actually was more of a thing when I was a student, I would say, um, and studied law. And then I really kind of grew my interest in this particular area that I'm in at the moment. But yeah, I think growing up there, there, there was always an, an interest, and certainly at school, I never really sort of warmed towards sort of science subjects or anything like that. It was always more more the arts and more sort of writing, I suppose, and things like that. Or um, yeah, in that, in that domain, I'd say more. We live in an age of increasing polarisation when it comes to the media and political commentary. And human rights are now sometimes denigrated as being woke, quote unquote, rather than essential. We also often envisage lawyers as barristers in wigs or sharply suited litigators like suits. And I was really interested in what drew Vicky to human rights work and the cause of those who are often marginalised with their voices not heard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I think that that's it. You, you know, the image that you have of the lawyer is very much the suited and booted sort of cutthroat world of, of that big city law firm kind of thing. And that that never, never appealed to me. It, it, it just was almost anathema to me, actually. I just didn't want to be in that kind of corporate cutthroat world. Um, but this kind of, I suppose, career of service, and that's how I always kind of look at it in terms of what I do, really sort of, I suppose, um, for me started um, when I worked, when I again was a student, worked at a prison crash. And I was volunteering, um, looking after kids when the the parents were going to visit their loved ones in prison there. So that really was at a very early age there. But what motivated me or what motivates me to do it is that, you know, we are in a position where we can be allies and we can amplify those individuals' voices where they, where they cannot or, you know, um, so I think there's a, a real deep desire to do that work. And also, you know, we could very easily find ourselves in these positions. And, you know, if, if life took a different turn for us, you know, we could find ourselves sitting in a, a prison cell potentially or um, overseas, whatever like that. So um, for me, I, th- I think it's, you know, that everybody is vulnerable in that respect, you know, that w- we could find ourselves in that position there. So I think that that's where my desire to do this work comes from, um, to, to help to amplify those voices. And working in a prison crash is quite an unusual job as a student, Vicky. Um, how did you get into that? Well, um, I studied law for my undergraduate degree and I never enjoyed my law degree actually until the very end. <laughs> this is, this is, and this is what I say when I'm helping and supporting students. I never enjoyed my law degree until I could study things like international law, um, civil liberties, and one of my courses was penology, which is a study of punishment and why people do bad things. Um, and so it, it, that that sort of voluntary work was a nice alignment and it worked quite well with my core studies. Um, and so I, I joined this um, group of, of young students going to, to visit uh, or going to help in the in the, the crash in the prison in Bristol. Um, and it, yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. it sort of just seemed to be a, a nice kind of practical add-on to do um, whilst I was doing my my legal studies. Mm. And I suppose from that aspect of things, the stories you hear give you a very different perspective on things, I would imagine. Would that be right? Yeah, you, 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 I, I think that is true. You, you know, you, you hear maybe not so much from the from that particular experience because I wasn't I was working with the children or looking after the kids. Um, but 
but through my career certainly yes you know you 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 hear other stories other lived experiences that you might not have access to actually that you might not be privy to had it not been for doing this kind of work so definitely so I think there's something to that yeah and you started in your 20s you've worked for amnesty you've worked for various kind of government and not and non-governmental organizations for those people who are not familiar with that world can you give us a flavor of what the kind of differences and advantages are of working in the government versus the non-governmental because i think it's quite an interesting topic um and often working for ngos seems quite exciting and adventurous um what can you give us a flavor of what those two different spheres are are all about Vicky and how you experienced working in both those different sectors yeah so if we I mean if if we look at the sort of not-for-profit world and the the non-governmental world I mean that that's a huge umbrella term actually and there are lots of different types of organizations that sit underneath that so you've got your big Big human rights organisations, the Human Rights Watchers, the Amnesty Internationals, um, and and others um, of this world, and and those are, are big big organisations there, um, with worldwide reach, um, with a big name, a big reputation behind them. And as you say, I, I had my my sort of stint of working for Amnesty, and that was quite early on in my career actually, um, and it's it's changed quite quite a lot since I was there. Um, but that gives you working for the in the non-governmental sector gives you that sort of on the ground experience, I think, of working perhaps directly with um, individuals that you're seeking to help and support. Um, and um, it gives you access to governments or that you're sort of trying to, to convince, cajole, persuade governments. So you have that voice um, there and that leverage, but also maybe access to international institutions like the UN or, or other international bodies there. So, so you've got those big organisations into national NGOs, and then you've got smaller ones, um, which are perhaps very um, specific to a particular issue, particular theme, a particular country or region, um, who might be based um, in, a, in a different part of the world there. Um, and, and that's a very different experience, I think, from working in the, in the big amnesties and such like there. Um, and, and often, you know, NGOs have financial kind of constraints put upon them, um, staff constraints. So, you know, there's often sort of challenges there in terms of how they do business. But I thoroughly think that, you know, as a human rights professional, having some engagement with and and spending some time in the not-for-profit NGO sector is an important part of, of being a human rights professional. Flip side of that is working for the government um, or, or working in, in, in that world. And I've had two stints of, of working um, in the government. I've been a government lawyer for four and a half years where I was working on terrorism and national security cases. And then more recently, I was actually seconded in to the foreign office. So working in the government is a, is a very different sort of flavor and shape as well, because you are a civil servant, you have all the kind of constraints that go with being a civil servant, you are signed up to the civil service code, you, you know, you, you can only do so much within the parameters of, of what government policy is at the time. So in my second position in, in government, I was a human rights advisor to the Foreign Office, so advising Foreign Office staff on any human rights issues affecting British nationals detained overseas. And there I, I was very much kind of having to follow the, the policy of the day of that particular government um, 
but also trying to sort of nudge and push at the edges there and to see where there might be some flex in government policy. But I think it's really, again, useful to have had an insight as a government official, because if we, if we as human rights professionals are looking to challenge government, what better way to do that than, have, than knowing how government works from the inside? So I think it, you know, each and every experience gives you something and, and helps you grow as a human rights professional. Yeah. And actually I put that down on my put that down on my list of questions was about different governments and you know obviously we've recently had a change of government in the US and you know from one administration to something very different we have changes of government in the UK. Um obviously a a prominent human rights case in the UK at the moment is that of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe and whilst I'm sure I'm not going to ask you to comment on individual cases how difficult is it to manage changes of policy and changes of government with regard to ongoing cases, Vicky? Because I was thinking about um, you being in the groove, I guess, as it were, of of one political party or another, and then having to cope and flex with a change of policy and a change of individuals who really can have quite different opinions and quite different political views on not just home policy and immigration, et cetera, but international policy as well. How do you manage that as a civil servant? Because I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I worked a little bit on Nazanin's case, actually, at one point. But it's really it's a challenge, actually, there, I I think so, because um, you, you are just as a civil servant, you're working for the government of the day. Um, and whether you personally support that policy, support that government, you know, you have to put that aside. You're working for whatever, you know, the government is and whatever policy they actually issue and, and they they decide to sort of follow there. So um, it, 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 is, it is difficult um, at, at times, uh, you know, if you don't necessarily sort of adhere to, to the policy or follow the policy, but you, you, but you are limited. In, in how much sort of flex and scope there is. But as I said before, there, there is always, you know, possibilities at the fringes, at the margins there to sort of test that policy and to see how far, you know, it, it might go. I did have those instances of those of some cases where we were trying to, to test the policy or, or at least kind of push the policy a little bit there. But, you know, you are you are slightly kind of hamstrung in that respect. You just have to go with what the government is. And can you give us a bit of an insight Vicky as well into when British nationals are being held abroad and you are working as a lawyer to try and engage their freedom can you give us an insight into the sort of mix of law and diplomacy that goes into that Uh, because I imagine it's not all just about the pure law there's a certain art to it as well I imagine can you give us an insight into how that works and what your role would have been in all of that and kind of like you say, working at the fringes, how do you go about doing that? And what does that entail? Well, I mean, my my role really was to um, advise foreign office staff, um, be it sort of from ambassadors down to your consular staff on two things, actually, you know, what does international human rights law say about fair trial, about torture mistreatment, about prison conditions? So actually equipping those colleagues with with that sort of hardcore sort of legal knowledge, but also sort of more nuanced was, you know, when and how should the British government intervene in those cases? So it was more exactly, as you say, there a diplomatic sort of strategic lens. um, And and when should should, um, officials in 
country X or country Y intervene and, and, and sort of agitate on, on those particular points there. But again, all within the, the sort of parameters of, of what British government policy was at that time in terms of British nationals detained overseas. So it was a very sort of, it, it was a fascinating role because you were exactly using your legal skills and knowledge, but in a diplomatic context and alongside diplomats, working with diplomats there. So um, I, I definitely sort of appreciated that. And, you know, you you realise very quickly that there are perhaps other issues, interests, concerns at play um, alongside the, the, the human rights issues. So you, you have to be very sort of sensitive to that and to, to those other kind of parallel discussions or to parallel kind of pressures that might be, be on, alongside. And you've, you've obviously worked in some pretty interesting and unusual places during your career Vicky. Um, I was just going to touch on Kosovo to begin with because um, you had a stint working there and um, for those people who are not too familiar with the history of Kosovo can you just give us a little flavour of what the backdrop was to you working there um, after the after the conflict? So, so my, my, my backdrop is quite a sort of particular one actually and it was a particular driver for me going there because um, before before that, I before I went there, I was an immigration and asylum lawyer, um, working for a na- large national charity here in London, and I had represented many asylum seekers from Kosovo during my time, and I wanted to see for myself what was bringing them to the UK, what was their driver, what was their sort of there. Um, so so that was what sort of took me. To, to Kosovo, and then an opportunity came up with um, the, the UN to, to go um, there, and I took a sabbatical from my position at, um, at the national charity there, <clears throat> excuse me, and I, I went to Kosovo for the year, um, initially as a legal officer, and then I moved um, to Pristina, where I was um, a minority rights officer, so I was looking to see how um, minorities were being treated um, by the UN and actually more of the provisional institutions institutions of government at that time that I went 2004 2005 the UN was sort of taking a step back from its role from its position um sort of divesting itself of its of its responsibilities um and handing it over to the the nascent sort of institutions there so um I was working with the minority rights team to see how various of the minorities were being treated in terms of transportation, education, um, various different areas. And what was it like there at that time? Um, so at that time, it, 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 it was functioning, it was working, it was um, a lot of, I seem to remember a lot of people were unemployed at the time there. Um, but it, it was just, as I say, just growing and, and, and sort of taking its own shape and form um, in terms of how it wanted to, to run Um as a, as, a, as a country, as a, a body, etc. So, um, yeah, but lot, lots of kind of working groups meeting about sort of security. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, immediately after the conflict when there were, it, it was sketchy. Um, it was certainly sort of a, a functional place. I lived in the community, um, both in, in Pristina and in um, Prizren, which was the first town that I was in. Um, so it wasn't like, regular peacekeeping missions where you might be in a big container somewhere so it was it, you know you were very much kind of embedded within the in the community 
some colleagues from Kosovo went to Liberia. There seemed to be quite a few people who went to Liberia from Kosovo. And I think that was quite a hardcore mission where you were in literally a container um, somewhere and your freedom of movement was very severely restricted. That was not so much the case for me in, in Kosovo. No, sure. That's absolutely fascinating, Vicky. I love hearing about all of this. It's just... Yeah, I don't know. It's so different and unusual. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's kind of fascinating to hear about. Um, so you've also uh, spent time working around Ukraine and, and Russia and Armenia as well, subsequently. Um, you did that for a few years. Can you have you spent time in those countries as well, Vicky? Can you tell us a little bit about that role? Yeah, so these, these were more sort of um, roles where I sort of parachuted in and did some human rights work. But I um I think from about 2007 to 11, let's say, um, I was a human rights expert with the Council of Europe um, and they um, invited me to go to these various countries, Armenia, Ukraine and Russia, as you say, to um, teach human rights law or to deliver sort of um, a training on, on European human rights law um, to the judiciary to the um, legal community, so to, to lawyers, and I think to some um, non-governmental organisations as well. Um, so they sent me in for a week at a time to, to deliver this training alongside a, a national expert um, who knew domestic law, because I don't know Ukrainian law, I don't know Russian law, um, and to deliver this training. And it was principally around training around um, safeguards for those people who are in detention. So again, still along you know my core area of work that I do on in the, um, uh, human rights uh, so it was that so it was really interesting to kind of understand the issues um, in those particular countries to just be in those countries you know when would I ever get the chance to go to Armenia otherwise um, but suffice to say it is a hidden gem so if you ever get the chance to go there go it's it's the most amazing country um, but just to to better understand um, the human rights issues in the in those countries, and actually, more recently now in my consultancy practice, I've kind of done a full circle and and have come back to to work on those countries now in in some of the work that I've been doing independently. So, so that was the the work that I was doing in those countries at that time with the Council of Europe. And you've mentioned teaching there. You've had guest lecturer spots. You know, you do a lot of teaching. What is it about kind of teaching that keeps you thriving I suppose you know there's it's, a lot of people say you either teach or you don't um you know do you see yourself as a as a teacher at, at heart I suppose Vicky and do, do you enjoy that side of things as well yeah so I, I've always kind of I've always had that sort of um drive to to I suppose to teach and maybe teaching is a, in a formal way but, but but sharing I think and mm. and sort of imparting knowledge and things so yes indeed I when I was a government lawyer, I did a guest lecture spot um, at Middlesex University. Um, and, and then uh, more recently, after leaving the Foreign Office, I did three months at um, Surrey University, where I taught the International Human Rights Law course. But no, I, I, I enjoy the teaching side, um, as long as it's kind of at, at the rhythm and pace that I can cope with. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think a lot of us would agree with that. And you've got your own consultancy now. You know, you've obviously been 
employed for a long time by lots of different governmental and, and non-governmental organizations, as we said. What was it that made you take the plunge into self-employment and how did you find that transition and shift? Because we talk a lot on this podcast about people starting their own businesses, taking leaps, becoming freelance. It sounds wonderful. Sometimes it's not always that easy. Um, how did you do, take that leap and how did you find it, Vicky? So, um, indeed, I mean, I've, I've been in, in human rights, gosh, for too long, 20, 24, 25 years there. And I'd always dipped in, as I said, to consultancy work during my, let's say, um, employed years or when I was with organisations. And then I finished up a um, maternity cover post with Penal Reform International back in 2019. And I'd worked with a couple of fantastic consultants there in, in my job there, sort of commissioning them to do work. and and I. I'd always wanted to kind of have that autonomy um, and that freedom to build my own practice and to kind of create my own human rights consultancy practice. So for better or for worse, I just thought I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a go and, and take that leap of faith. And, and I'm one of these people who is a bit of a blind optimist, I think. And I always try to sort of see the best in every opportunity and see where the, the, the opportunities are and what the universe brings. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to do it. Many people I know or other people I know who've been in the consultancy world have um, planned it and prepared for it and, and sort of done all of this kind of work towards the consultancy move. But I, I didn't do that. I just went for it. And, and then um, I've just kind of been very proactive in growing my consultancy myself. And um, I'm a bit of a LinkedIn addict. I um, spend lots of time on there, sort of reaching out to people, um, introducing myself to people, writing to people who I don't know, um, and and sort of sharing with them what I do. Um, so it's been a it's been an interesting experience. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, so I've kind of had to flex and shift um, accordingly. But actually, I've strangely, curiously, sort of had work resulting from that. Um, another piece of work that I did quite soon after was around was about the um, human rights impacts of COVID-19 measures in Russia. So looking at how Russia had um, had responded to COVID-19 through a human rights lens. So um, so I'm, I'm open to what the world brings. Um, and I just sort of see, uh, but you know, you have to be very proactive um, as, a, as when you're out on your own. I am a huge fan of blind optimism, Vicky, and I applaud that very much. <laughs> um, do you feel optimistic about where the world is going with regard to human rights, Vicky? Because it seems to me, as somebody with relatively little knowledge, that the media would have you believe that there's never enough money to create a significant difference and that we're not really making any progress. How do you view that as somebody on the inside? It's actually, the timing of your question is is really kind of key because there's literally just yesterday there was a um, a statement from the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, so that one of the, the the most senior sort of human rights official in the UN, saying that that human rights have never been at risk more than than, than now, and that we've got you know a long way to go to, to protect human rights. So, I think we're at a very fragile moment. Um, we've you know we're in the midst of a pandemic where you know, rights are being sort of trodden on left, right and centre, um, you know, from freedom of movement to our freedom of expression to to lots of different fields um, in every walk of life. So um, but I think, you know, that this is also a moment where we where we can and, and should and must sort of reassert the importance 
of human rights and a rule of law um, that we that we should be you know the rule of law should be front and center um, when we're in such a fragile place. So I I do feel optimistic, um, but you know we have to be realistic as well, right? That you know you, we are in a, in challenging times, um, but you know with human rights it's it's about the small wins it's about those small sort of incremental wins that we have you know we're never going to see the end of torture in one particular country overnight but we might see some legislation where you know torture is is outlawed or or criminalized or we might see you know progressive measures in certain in certain fields and things so i think we we have to remain optimistic because if we lose that optimism then where do we go from there you know um but but now, more than ever, I think human rights are really under the, ra- the, len- the radar on the lens um, when, when we are in a place where, you know, everything is, is, is at risk in a way. Our, all our liberties are at risk. And I know you're very keen on encouraging other people into careers in human rights, Vicky. And um, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you a plug because it totally deserves it. <laughs> You've got your own podcast, um, The Passion Factor, which is pursuing a career in human rights. And I know that you do a lot of work in encouraging particularly other women and minorities into this work as well. What would your advice be to anyone who has an interest, particularly if they feel they don't come from a background that would be conducive to easily getting into a career in human rights, Vicky? Yeah, well, thank you for the big, thank you for the plug. Yeah, no, I, I, I do have the, the, the podcast um, that I, that I, where I interview senior and mid-career human rights professionals about their own journey into human rights, the ups and the downs and the challenges, and then, you know, inviting them to impart useful advice to, to the younger generation. Um, I mean, in terms of the advice that I offer, I mean, it's really sort of, I suppose, two or threefold. First of all, sort of, I encourage people to, to start writing about human rights issues. And I'm not saying that they have to write a huge big tome for, you know, some some very sort of um, senior human rights journal, but start sort of becoming a thought leader and thinking about human rights in a critical way. Um, and it could be writing a piece, a blog piece. It could be writing something for their university or other institution, um, but start to sort of create your own human rights profile and narrative there. So which will stand you in good stead when you are going for that interview or you're putting your application together. Um, So I think there's something around that. I think um, another sort of important thing that I encourage young professionals to do is to volunteer and to to. give some time to a particular human rights cause or issue that they care deeply about. But I say that very advisedly. I say, firstly, you know, if you can try to find a position which is remunerated and paid, because there's no reason why young professionals should have to do that pro bono piece and that, you know, if they can possibly avoid it, their work must be valued and and, and cherished as much as, you know, other human rights professionals. Um, but also it gives them the opportunity to meet other human rights professionals, to engage, to to learn about that human rights issue, to build up their knowledge and expertise. So I think there's great value in in doing some pro bono, uh, some voluntary work um, uh, uh, in that in the sector. And then thirdly, just networking and talking to to human rights professionals. So getting out there on LinkedIn or, or other platforms and actually sort of just asking human rights professionals for half an hour of their time um, as to, you know, what was their own journey? How did they get to where they are now? And you can be sure that those people will give a, give some useful advice and help, um, uh, you know, to, to young professionals. Mm. So that's 
the, the advice that I offer. And you yourself are, uh, you know, offer a lot of mentorship to younger human rights professionals. I loved on this podcast to talk about mentors, mistakes and motivations. And we talked about your motivations a bit at the beginning. Have you had people in your career that have acted as significant mentors for you? And if so, how did you find them, Vicky? So, yeah, absolutely. I've had people who've traveled with me along the way um, who have, you know, been, been, yeah, a sounding board sort of um, giving wise advice. Um, and, 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 and now to, to this moment as well, sort of peers, I suppose, who, you know, are my, my vintage and, and my sort of um, in terms of professional kind of careers there. Um, how did I find them? I don't know really. I, th- I think they're just people who 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 have come into my world, who've come into my sphere, who I've who I um, appreciate their words, who I respect greatly um, in terms of of their own professional careers path and what they've done, um, and and whose judgment I, I value. So um, and I, and those people, you know, different different mentors come into your life at different moments actually, and for different things. So it could be somebody who's there to kind of just give you that confidence boost that you might need. It could be somebody who is there to help you in terms of, of you know, transitioning in your career to, you know, a different role or something like that and can help you either, you know, practically speaking, please look at my CV, please look at my cover letter, something like that. Or it can just be people who, who are just there to bounce ideas off on. Um, and I have that a lot now. I've kind of curated a, what I call a consultant family, actually, of people who are, you know, in my world and who, you know, constantly talking to, sharing with, um, you know, um, in terms of, of where where to go next in terms of consultancy work. So, um, but I, I think mentorship is really important and valuable at all stages of our lives. Yeah, definitely. And networking really underpins that, doesn't it? I thought it was interesting what you were saying about being quite busy on LinkedIn. You know, it's sometimes that seems time consuming and fruitless, but actually it's, it's so key, particularly in these kind of post-pandemic times where we can't get out so much. Um, the power of social media and the internet to connect you with other people is is really strong. I mean, that's how, you know, you and I have met through social media, let's face it. Absolutely. So, you know, it's kind of, um, it's, it's an incredible one that's not to be underestimated, I think. And, you know, we often talk about failures and mistakes as well and, and what you have learned from them during your career, Vicky. Can you give us any insights into things that you've picked up as a result of failures that you've encountered, big or, big or small, really, Vicky, to be quite honest? I've had sort of aberrations, I suppose, in my, <laughs> in my career there, which I, which I don't know. So I've, I've, I did a stint uh, with the Council of Europe for um, a year in, in procurement, which was way, way out of my comfort zone in terms of, of, of human rights work. And it's sort of it stands out like a bit like a sore thumb in my in my CV a wee bit, but um, I suppose it's 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 how you how you pick that up and how you use that right, and and you sort of try to sort of uh, turn it on its head and say, well, what yeah, what did I learn from that experience? You're absolutely right, and how did you know um, there? And and I, and I found that really quite a challenging year, I have to say, and 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 because I don't really come, I don't have a business commercial head. <laughs> I quickly had to get one. So, um, but, but, you know, I, I sort of turned that around and think, well, you know, I, I learned more about, you know, the, the business side of, of human rights, I suppose, um, or, or just having a, you know, a, a more commercial mind and a commercial lens to things there. So, um, so I think every, 
mistake, aberration or something like that, or, or something that takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone. And indeed, actually, even, even sort of new areas of, of work that I've been doing now more recently, um, you know, you, you learn from that, you, you pick up from that and you sort of think, well, it actually broadens my horizons and it gives me a wider scope and, and, and a more strings to my bow, actually, I think there. So that's how I always look at these things and try to sort of reconfigure them or, 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 or remarket them, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's a good idea. And if people are interested in your podcast, your work, your mentorship, where can people find you? Where's the best place for people to connect with you, Vicky? Because I'm sure you are open to connection as we've just discussed. Yeah, absolutely. So where I hang out, well, um so in terms of the of the podcast, um that is housed or home uh, on a platform called Human Rights Pulse. So you can find that at humanrightspulse.com. I have my own website, which is vickypraise.com. Um, but my main my main place is actually LinkedIn. So people can find me there. So those are the main places that, that you'll find me. And, and certainly if people are interested to connect to me, um, having heard me on this, then with pleasure. Well, I'll link to some of Vicky's articles. You're an amazing writer as well, Vicky. Um, I know some of the stuff that you've written will be of great interest to people. Um, And yeah, I will link to your website in the show notes. Um, I always throw the floor open to guests at the end just to say, is there any other advice or points of interest that we haven't covered that you think are pertinent, either with regard to your career or other people developing their own? No, thank you. I mean, no, I think think it's really what I've I've sort of alluded to there in, in the sort of the bit about young professionals that you know I genuinely believe that there is a place and a space for everybody who wants to to be in the human rights world um it may take time it may take determination and tenacity but you genuinely will get to where you want to get to in the human rights world um and I'm thrilled and, and always very encouraged by people that I see who want to to get into this world so that would be my sort of main one of my main messages I suppose <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a good take home. Vicky, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your hearts to rate and review the show on iTunes or give us a shout out on your own socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.